of Acts, Acts chapter 4, as we continue to walk through uh, this great narrative of the early church. And as we look this morning at Acts chapter 4, I want us to see, I think the overarching point of the text is that the Holy Spirit enables believers to speak boldly about the gospel to others. The Holy Spirit enables believers to speak boldly about the gospel to others. And so the title of the sermon this morning is, What a Difference the Holy Spirit Makes. Uh, I just threw Brandon off because I I skipped four. So sorry about that, Brandon. What a difference the Holy Spirit makes. And this is what we want to see this morning, that the Holy Spirit enables us as believers, all who have been filled with the Holy Spirit, to live in such a way that we can boldly tell others about the gospel. This is the ministry that the Holy Spirit has in our lives, or one of the ministries the Holy Spirit fills in our lives. But before we read the text, I want to invite you uh, just to join me in prayer. Our Father, as we open your word, I pray, God, that you would speak to us and lead us by your Holy Spirit today. I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 4 is really a transition section. It kind of closes out chapter 3 and what we saw last week and gives us an intro into chapter 4 and what we see this week. But this this transition that it provides, if you remember, in chapter 3 of Acts, Peter and John were heading to the temple, and it was the ninth hour. They were going there to pray. And as they were approaching the temple, they were coming near to this gate called Beautiful. And sitting at this gate was this lame man. Kind of the details of the text tell us that he was actually lame since birth. And so he had been sitting there begging alms. That was his primary vocation, to beg alms. And as he's begging alms, Peter and John happen to pass by. And they look at him and he's asking for alms, alms, alms for the poor. But what Peter and John do is they reach out their hand. And Peter says, silver and gold, I have none, but what I do have... I give you in the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. And you know what happened? That man got up and he walked. He was healed, completely healed. Luke tells us this as a doctor. He kind of, that was Luke's profession before he began writing as a historian, right? He was a doctor. And so Luke tells us, he gives us these details about how the whole man was made well. It wasn't just his physical healing, but even spiritual healing. And the result of that was a crowd was drawn together there at the temple. And Peter and John began preaching the gospel right then and there in the temple temple grounds, in the court, in the temple courtyard. And as they're preaching the gospel, all these people are hearing. And the beginning of chapter 4 tells us at least 2,000 were added to the number because the total number came to be about 5,000 men within the fellowship of the The church. And so that's kind of where we begin now in chapter 4. This is what's happened. People have believed the gospel. They've surrendered their lives. They've been converted to faith in Christ. And so now in chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, I want you to follow along as I read. As they were speaking to the people, that's Peter and John, the priests and the captain of the temple and Sadducees came upon them. Greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. 
On the next day, their rulers and elders and, and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all, of, all who were of high priestly family. And they had sent them in the midst. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. You know, we can engage in conversation with people relatively easy about Jesus. Relatively easy about, uh, about church. About various religions. But if we take it just a step, to f a step further and begin telling people that Jesus is the only way to go to heaven, right? People agree generally that Jesus was a good man, a moral teacher, even a good teacher. You can get people to agree on those particular details. But when you take it a step further to begin saying, well, Jesus is the only way to get to heaven, there's no other religion that, that, that a man can get to heaven through, that a woman can get to heaven through. There's only one way. It's through Jesus Christ. At that moment, you've crossed a line in our culture, right? At that moment, you've become politically incorrect because now you're saying, you're, you're saying my view is incorrect because your view is the only correct way. You've claimed an absolute and so what I, I want us to see kind of in the context of what's happening here in chapter 4 is that Peter and John have just pulled this great absolute out. 
And they've highlighted it for all to see. And in the midst of doing, they've even indicted those religious leaders who were the ones who wanted to see Jesus crucified. So really in the first scene, what we, what we see is political incorrectness and the exclusive gospel. Verses 1 through 12, we see it. And as we read chapter 4 in Acts, we get, there's, we get this sense. There's this radical change sweeping throughout first century Judaism. Our first century Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit is blowing across the city in, in new and unprecedented ways. Thousands of people are leaving Judaism for their newfound faith in Christ. This is what Jesus promised during his earthly ministry, though, isn't it? John 14, 12, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Right? Peter and John have just done those. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. What do these greater works look like? Looks like proclaiming this good news, the gospel, and seeing thousands come to faith in Christ. Seeing thousands enter into this kingdom walk. You know, many leaders throughout history have promised hope and change under their rule. But none have delivered like Jesus. One would think that the news of resurrection from the dead, from the grave, would be enough to make even the vilest offender repent and confess the error of their ways, confess their sin. Especially those who have the religious institution. Especially those who are pointing others to God. The ones who are charged to care for the temple and the, one who are char- the ones who are charged to commune with God's people. Lead them to see God and to know God. But this wasn't the case for the religious leaders. It was the priests and the temple captain. And the Sadducees, who interrupted Peter and John as they were teaching and preaching, right? Remember that in verse 1? They came to him while they were teaching and preaching. You know, they thought that they had dealt with the problem of this Jewish Messiah, Jesus. They thought that they had gotten rid of it. But they were blind. They were blind to their wicked part in God's glorious and sovereign plan. And they certainly couldn't foresee the continuation of Jesus' ministry. So instead of seeing this resurrection news as good news, they saw it as a threat. It was a threat to their way of life. It was a threat to their religious institution. And it was a threat to their political power. So from here on out in the book of Acts... As the gospel th- spreads throughout Jerusalem into all Judea and Samaria and even to the end of the earth, we see that opposition begins growing. Chapter 4 marks the beginning of opposition to the gospel. And it grows from small to great. And what I want us to see in verses 1 through 4, for the disciples and by implication for us, the resurrection changes everything. The resurrection changes everything. It says there in verse 2, they were greatly annoyed. (laughs) That's the religious leaders. That's the temple captain, the priests. They were greatly, they were angry. Why? Well, because who are these guys, these uneducated men, these common men? Who are they and what gives them the right to stand in the middle of the temple and preach and teach? They don't have the right to teach here. Not only that, what are they teaching about? They were teaching about Jesus. They were teaching chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. Go back and look. This is why they were arrested. They were teaching that that Jesus was the holy and righteous one, the glorified servant of God. 
He was the author of life. And they were also proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. This was a hot-button issue in the day. If there was one thing that was politically incorrect to speak about, it was resurrection. Especially for the Sadducees, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. They were against the resurrection. The reason is because the resurrection threatened their power. They were the aristocrats of Judaism. They were the social and religious elite of the day. And so for John and Peter, there was one way to ensure that they would land in hot water with the temple authorities. Peter and John knew this, but they couldn't keep quiet. There was something incredible that had happened. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave had changed everything for them. And when the Holy Spirit filled them, they could not help but preach and tell others about this work that God had done. See, it was because of the resurrection that they had hope through Jesus. Because he proved to triumph powerfully over sin and death and Satan. It's because of the resurrection that all who believe in Jesus have life. That's chapter 3, verse, verses 19 and 20. Jesus, uh, the, the, the apostle said, Repent therefore and turn again from your sins that they may be blotted out. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Christ appointed for you. Do you know this truth? This hope of resurrection? Because of resurrection life, because of what Jesus has done in rising from the grave, there is hope. There is hope beyond this life. There is a certainty and an assuredness after death in this life. There is power over sin and sickness and death. The grave. Without the resurrection, the Holy Spirit would not have come to fill Christ's disciples. And because of the resurrection, there was healing power through Peter and John when they touched the lame man. Because of the resurrection, Peter and John were made bold to preach the gospel in the midst of the temple. And because of the resurrection, they knew death was not the end. Chapter 3, verse 21, where... Luke tells us, speaking of Jesus, whom heaven and earth, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. That is to say that Jesus is going to restore all things. You can bet on it because he's resurrected from the grave. And when he resurrected, he ascended to the Father. This is the truth of Christianity. This is a foundational doctrine of the church of Jesus Christ. The resurrection from the grave. Without the resurrection, we have no hope. And so Peter and John, man, they have been gripped because the resurrection has changed everything. They've seen the living Messiah walking among them. And I want to encourage you, like Peter and John, the resurrection should change everything for us this morning. Because there's a hope and a security in the doctrine of the resurrection assuring us that our living God is going to put everything right once and for all. This is the hope of Christ. And so no matter what happens to us in this life, 
No matter the consequences, be it big or small, we have the assurance that our living God triumphs over powers of Satan and his wicked darkness. As as Romans 8 says, if God is for us, who can be what? Against us. They were arrested for their teaching and their proclamation because it was politically incorrect. They made the authorities mad to speak of the resurrection of Jesus But they didn't care. They preached the truth of the gospel anyway. And they did it with an unashamed boldness. You see that in verses 5 through 12. There was this boldness. They they kept the truth of the resurrection front and center. You know, in verses 5 and 7, the next morning, Peter and John are brought before the religious leaders. They're brought before the Sanhedrin for, uh, for interrogation. It would have been a pretty intimidating scene. You know, this had all the markings of of being really intense. These guys were the Sanhedrin. They were well educated. They had attended the equivalent of what we would call prestigious universities. They had arrived at an education of what we would call PhDs. And they had devoted their entire lives to studying the scriptures. And then... Peter and John are arrested, and they're brought right in their midst, and these guys are sitting in a semicircle, and Peter and John are standing right there in the midst of them. Now, I don't know about you, but I would have been pretty intimidated. And so Peter and John, in that moment, though, I, I can't help but to think about Luke chapter 21, verse 12, which says, Jesus is speaking to his disciples during his earthly ministry, and he says, but before all this... They will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. Listen, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. (laughs) And Peter and John, in that moment, standing there. Verse 8, don't miss it. Verse 8 says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. He begins addressing them. Rulers and elders, rulers of the people and elders. Listen. If we're here standing on trial, because of a good deed that we have done to a crippled man. If you want to know by what power and by what name we've done this, here it is in verse 10. It's by the power of Jesus Christ. It is by the name of Jesus Christ that this man has been healed, that he has been made well. But he didn't stop there. Look at verse 11. He went on in verse 11 to lay a great and bold indictment against the leaders. He says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. In other words, the high priests, the religious leaders, they were the master builders charged by God to build his people. All their work and all of their lives had come down to this moment in time, and they didn't just miss Jesus, they crucified him. You know what Peter and John were doing in the midst of these guys when they were standing there? They were doing theology. 
That's what they were doing. They were doing theology. You know what verse 11 is? Verse 11 is a, a quote from Psalm 118.22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And what Peter and John are doing is they're taking God's word and they're making application in their day, right there in their midst. They're doing theology. They're processing God's word and, and the Holy Spirit is bringing to mind these truths of Scripture as they're standing in the midst, giving a defense for the hope of the gospel and the resurrection of Christ. And as they're standing there, they begin to talk about Christ being the cornerstone. Meaning, here's what they're saying and here's what these leaders would have understood them to say. That Jesus Christ is the very fulfillment of God's covenant. He's the one that the patriarchs and the prophets had pointed to. And in him is the culmination of God's rescue plan of redemption. He's the capstone. He's the one that finished off the building. Is what they're saying. The building that you were supposed to build and you missed it. And so in verse 12, they follow up with this indictment. And the indictment is the exclusive claim of the gospel this is a truth of christianity it's one that is definitely politically incorrect in our day and there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved but what are you saying is this is this saying that jesus is the only way to get to heaven yes that's what god's word says and yes that is the mission that Jesus Christ came on. He came to redeem us from our sin, from our corruption. I wonder what, what names people turn to for rescue today. Do they turn to Jesus' name? Maybe self-help books, positive thinking seminars, philosophy of the world, prosperity gospel, all of these are vain attempts to mask the true human condition. And the true human condition is that we're broken. We're broken sinners in need of divine rescue. And what Peter and John are telling these leaders today, telling these leaders then and what we need to hear today, is that there's one name, one king who delivers on his promise. There is only one name who can truly rescue us from our sinful condition. And that name is Jesus Christ. He is the one who is resurrected from the grave. And he is the one who is powerful to save us. You see, the unashamed boldness of the disciples is really, I think it's refreshing. We, we need to read and to think on their example. Because it reminds us the, of the importance of knowing what we believe and why we believe it about the scripture. But even more importantly, it reminds us of the need, our need for being dependent on the Holy Spirit. Dependent for the Spirit to give us words to speak and opportunities that we have to share the truth of the gospel. So let me ask you, brother and sister, has the resurrection changed your life? Are you being unashamedly bold in your faith proclamation? The second scene in verses 13 through 22 is called a noticeable difference. You know, it's amazing to me with a little bit of what a little bit of exercise can do. And even, even more so, if you, if you change your diet along with the exercise, it's even more amazing what happens. 
before long, you, you begin to notice a, a difference in the way that you feel, right? You have more energy. Maybe you have greater mental clarity. You have greater endurance. You have more self-discipline. The old clothes hanging in the closet, they suddenly begin to fit just a little bit better, and now you kind of look like you have a new, bit, new wardrobe, right? Then in just a little while longer, other people begin to, to notice things. Even those without the social media begin to notice that there's a change in you, right? They may even be inspired and challenged by the changes that they see you making. Well, it's, it's amazing how that works. But in a much more dramatic way, the religious leaders noticed something different about Peter and John. Look at verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. What I want us to see here, this truth, is that walking with Jesus changes us and challenges others. Walking with Jesus changes us and challenges others. You know, because Peter and John had spent time with Jesus, they were, they were different. Because they knew Jesus, they had become filled with the Holy Spirit. And the point of verse 13 is that these guys were common men. They were uneducated, and yet they were full of wisdom. They were bold, and they showed a remarkable depth to their understanding of Scripture. Because they had been with Jesus. So in verse 14, the religious leaders were, they were left speechless as they saw the healed man standing right beside Peter and John. If you think about it, they've seen this man a lot before. Verse 22 gives us a, another clue about this man. He was older than 40 years old. He had been lame since birth. We had talked last week about how this was his primary vocation. So he's been doing this for some years now sitting at the temple gate beautiful, begging alms. And it just makes sense as these religious leaders, as they're going in and out of the temple, would see this man. And one of the pillars of Judaism was giving alms to the poor. And so you've got to know that these guys, each of these ones sitting in this semicircle, interrogating Peter and John, know that this man is not a fraud. They know that he's been healed. They see it. In fact, they've probably even given him money before. And so it says in verse 16 that they couldn't deny it because a notable sign had been performed and everybody saw it. But in verse 17, it says in order that they could keep it quiet, they, they would warn Peter and John not to speak anymore in this name. You know, as I... I looked at this and thought about it. Many people want to make a parallel application between the rulers and the elders and the scribes with some Christians today. You know, I, while there's probably room for that, I think the more glaring parallel is seen by noticing the human condition behind this interrogation. Think about it for a moment. I mean, contrary to what they've witnessed, complete healing of the lame man that they've seen for years, their want for authority and power was blinding them from the miracle of God standing in their midst. You know what that tells us about them? They were lovers of self. They were lovers of the world. 
they were unwilling to deny themselves in order to follow God. And the reality is this hasn't changed in 2,000 years. It's exactly what we see in our culture today. It might even be what some here are experiencing this morning. Lovers of self, in love with the world, unwilling to deny themselves and follow Jesus. They saw something in Peter and John that didn't fit in their, in their nicely constructed box. In fact, it was something they'd only seen in Jesus. I want to encourage you and exhort you, church, that our responsibility is to be a different people. Our responsibility, believer, your responsibility is to be a people who's recognized as having been with Jesus. But what does that look like today? What does it look like to be a person who has been with Jesus? You know, if I wanted to learn something about the culture and customs of another country, I could maybe watch a documentary. That would be informative and helpful. Uh, I could even go to Amazon and buy a couple of books on that particular culture and country and get them home and read them, or, uh, or I could go visit Bill at the public library and check out some of the books on that particular country and culture, or, or I could do something different. I could actually go to the culture that I want to learn about. I could immerse myself in that culture. You know, the first options would be helpful. They would give me a little bit of information, right? But, but by immersing oneself in that culture, I would really learn. It would be the best way to learn, in fact, to go to the country and to experience it firsthand, to be with a people of that country and to walk with them and to eat with them and to, to stay in their home and so on and so forth. Well, in a similar way, to be known as one who has been with Jesus takes more than just listening to a sermon are reading a book about him, are attending a few church services here and there. It requires more than just being a moral person. It requires surrendering our lives to Christ. It requires confessing and repenting of sin and immersing ourselves fully in communing with Christ, in prayer and study of Scripture, in dependency on the Holy Spirit. And when we do this, Jesus will change us. He will change us and he will change others. And he will change us and others will be challenged because of the change that happens in our lives. You see, the religious leaders noticed something different about Peter and John. I wonder for you and me, if we were put on trial and all the evidence was brought forward against us, for being with Jesus, would there be enough evidence to indict us as people who had been with Jesus? Believer, would there be enough evidence to indict you as one who is known as being with Jesus? Peter and John make their stance in verses 18 through 20, having been charged by the council to speak no more in Jesus' name. In verse 19 and 20, they respond. And they respond with these words. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. This begs the question. Are we speaking of what we have seen and heard? What, what captivates your heart, believer? What occupies that 
that forefront spot of your, the, the spot in the forefront of your mind? What holds your focus, believer? The opposition that we experience in our day and our culture isn't nearly as overt as what Peter and John were facing here. But we still face opposition. We still face pressure. I'm not denying that. Social pressure, difficulties. I, I met a guy this week who, in his mind, had it all figured out. I listened to him as he shared his own perspective about about church, about the religious system, and he kind of shared it dismissively. He never spoke of Jesus. He just shared his own philosophy as to why he thinks people go to church, which was basically, in his opinion, to earn favor with God. The insinuation that he was making was clear. Religion, church, is a crutch. It wasn't really a deep conversation. But I couldn't help but to continue to think about it throughout the week, even as I came to the text that we're looking at this morning. And one of my conclusions, just coming away from that conversation, is I was just kind of a bystander in it even. As Christians, we have to learn to think differently. We have to learn to engage people where they are. You know, people aren't walking up to us, most likely, and saying, would you please share the gospel with me? Right? That doesn't, that doesn't happen. But opportunities to share the gospel are plentiful. And what I hear as I speak with people is their, really their own philosophical musings about church, about religion, about Jesus. But our challenge, church, your challenge, believer, is to have a response that counters the false assumptions and the wrong conclusions about who Jesus is. So don't be afraid to say, hey, you've got it all wrong. That's not at all what church is about. That's not at all who Jesus is. Let me tell you about Jesus and then trust that the Holy Spirit will give you words to share in the midst of it, right? There needs to be a boldness that accompanies our faith, an unashamed boldness to speak about the hope of the gospel. A life lived with Jesus is filled with opportunities to speak of what we've seen and heard. And so we should understand that to speak the name of Jesus is to invite others into experiencing life, life in Christ. Can it be said of you that you've been with Jesus? Are you ready to tell others of what you have seen and heard? And finally, this morning, I want to close by seeing this third scene in verses 23 through 31. Prayer and God's sovereignty. Prayer and God's sovereignty. Think about what's transpired. Keep that in mind over the last 24 hours for Peter and John, right? A trip to the temple at the ninth hour to pray, healing of the lame man, preaching of the gospel, thousands converted to faith in Christ, put in jail, interrogated by the Sanhedrin, told to quit preaching, and then responding to the authorities saying, We will not quit preaching. Then they're released. The first thing they do when they get released is they go and they tell their friends, they report to their friends what the elders had said and the priest had said to them. And it says in verse 24 that when they heard it, that is the congregation, they lifted their voices together in prayer. And so as we close, I want to highlight three truths about prayer that we see on display in the early church. And I think they're applicable for you and for me today. 
The first is that prayer reveals our submission to God's authority. Prayer reveals our submission to God's authority. You know, Luke intentionally contrasts man's authority and God's authority here in chapter 4. Peter and John have been before the authorities of the temple. But we notice in the prayer that they call out to Sovereign Lord here in verse 24. The word which we get, Sovereign Lord, it gives us the word in English, despot. Which means a king or a ruler with absolute unlimited power. And so get, what, get the contrast that Luke's painting for us here. The, the authorities of land say, we can't speak in Jesus' name, but you, O oh Lord, you are the true authority. You are the creator of all things, right? Verse 24 and verse 25. So they acknowledge God's supreme authority. And then they begin praying God's word back to him. Verses 25 and 26 is a quote from Psalm 2, 1 and 2 again. Even in prayer, doing theology, taking God's word and applying it. They're claiming that Jesus Christ is God's anointed Messiah who rules over all the nations. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord, against his anointed. And what they're saying is, O Lord, to you alone we submit to your authority Alone, we will give allegiance. And they acknowledge that Jesus alone is the one who is due true allegiance. It was through the resurrection that God validated the truth of who Jesus is. And it was through the resurrection that God vindicated the life of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And so here's a question for us to think on. Have we fully submitted to God's authority in our life? Have you submitted to God's authority? Well, not only does prayer reveal our submission to God's authority, prayer also reveals our trust in God's sovereignty. We see this in verses 27 and 28. They confess their trust in God's sovereign plan. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, Listen, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You know, they're saying what happened to Jesus was part of your divine plan. And I want to submit to you, church, that this type of prayer takes deep trust. This type of prayer takes a deep faith. It takes deep faith in God's goodness. <clears throat> But this is the kind of prayer that a person who walks with Jesus is able to pray. Lord, no matter, no matter what happens, we trust in your goodness. You know, sometimes this can be the hardest way to pray as well. It's easy to pray this when nothing's going wrong, right? That's the easy time. But it, it's hard to pray this when you've been asking God to do this work in your life and it's something you desperately want and you think it's honoring to God, but he just doesn't seem to hear. It's the prayer then that says, God, I really want this, but I trust in your sovereignty. In those times that we walk through persecution or when we walk through opposition, when we walk through a terrible crisis in life, 
we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, whenever we walk through these difficult times, when we're facing what seems to be an insurmountable odds, here's what this prayer does. This prayer keeps us near God's throne. That's what this prayer does. God, I trust in your sovereignty. I don't understand, but I trust in your sovereign hand. And finally, not only does prayer reveal our submission to God's authority and our trust in God's sovereignty, prayer petitions God to use us in his work. Verses 29 through 31. Here's the prayer of the church. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Here's what trusting in God's authority, submitting to God's authority and trusting in God's sovereignty does. It frees us up to be used of God in his work. It frees us up to be bold in our proclamation. It frees us up to speak and to minister to others. This is their prayer. Hear their threats, God, and give us boldness in the midst of their threats. And then look at verse 30. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus, right? So get what they're saying. God, as you work, as you do this great and awesome and wonderful work, as you perform signs and wonders and heal people, just give us the boldness to speak. (laughs) We know that you're already working. Just give us the boldness to speak forth the gospel. Give us the boldness to be truthful in what we say. And then God answered their prayers. In verse 31, the place was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Church. When was the last time that you cried out to God so fervently to use you in his mission? When was the last time this type of fervency in prayer defined your prayer life, my prayer life? As believers and as a church, We need this sense over and over again of God shaking us up with his powerful presence and God filling us with his Holy Spirit, loosing our tongues to boldly speak. So let me ask you this morning, church, believer. Has the resurrection changed your life so that you're bold and living and telling others about the gospel? Is there a noticeable difference in your life because you've been with Jesus? And how's your prayer life, believer? Will you commit before God to have a greater dependency on him? I pray that you will. Would you join me in prayer? And then I want to invite you to take some time this morning while the final song is being played to reflect, to think upon God's hand and God's work in your life, to consider this God's word this morning and how it applies to your life and how you should respond.
Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, your word is true and good and helpful for us. It's instructive, O oh Lord, but it's more than that. It's, it's your living word. It's breathed upon us by your word this morning. So, Father, by your Holy Spirit, anoint us as your people. Fill us, God. Fill us that we would be, we would be passionate about following you and walking with you, O oh Lord. And Father, work in our midst as a people, O oh Lord, so that we would bring you glory and honor in all that we say and do, in all that we share in the way that we speak so that we might reach this community in Baton Rouge for your namesake and for your glory. Empower us, O oh Lord Jesus, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.